Today, we're talking about Sam Altman, the co-founder and CEO of OpenAI. And the reason to talk about Sam Altman should be obvious. He's basically the most important technologist in the world right now since he's running the preeminent artificial intelligence company with OpenAI. So in this episode, I want to go through his history, talk about his thoughts on building startups, give you an overview of some of the technologies that he's focused on and how he thinks the future might development, develop, and of course, go through his thoughts on artificial intelligence. And I thought it would be good to talk about artificial intelligence and Sam Altman in this episode because it links really nicely to our previous two episodes. A few people have, com have directly compared him to Tim Cook because when he took over Y Combinator from Paul Graham, he was kind of the Tim Cook of YC in that he wasn't the founder of Y Combinator, but he took over and really helped scale that business and really change the way the organization ran. And then in terms of a comparison to Alex Karp, Sam is very, very good at networking with the world's top leaders in the same way that Alex Karp is. Alex Karp is always seen at these crazy Davos and Sun Valley events and and Sam Altman has been really, really good about networking at the highest level. And you see this with the Microsoft OpenAI deal, which we'll get into in a little bit. So there are a few key questions that I want to answer in this episode. I mean, first off, I just want to understand how he wound up building OpenAI because it's a fascinating company. It's huge. And obviously, they launched one of the most successful consumer apps in the world with ChatGPT, but the whole story of how he built that company is really fascinating. And then I want to think about how he builds startups generally, since he's been at the heart of Silicon Valley. He's really like a Silicon Valley kingmaker these days. And then we need to talk about how he envisions the future playing out in a world where there is artificial intelligence. You know, he's been focused on nuclear. He has some stuff in crypto. It's really, really interesting. And it's kind of a, a post Elon view of the world. Elon, obviously, you know, the electric car revolution, the space revolution, but Sam's whole world is really predicated on this post AGI world that's really fascinating to think about. And then the last question I think we need to answer is, how is he going to deal with AGI? It's a really, really big deal if he can pull it off and he's going to be at the helm of this thing. And it's a big question, like, is humanity in good hands? So that's something we're, we're, we're going to need to investigate at various points throughout this story. So let's start with his early history. He was born in 1985. He's 38 years old now. He was born in St. Louis, Missouri, and he attends uh, prep school there. And on his eighth birthday, he gets a Macintosh computer and he loves it. A pretty, pretty normal story for a tech founder. But something really interesting happens while he's in high school. There's a Christian group that boycotts an assembly that the school has where they talk about identity and sexual orientation. And Sam actually stands up and announces to the entire assembly that he's gay. And it's like a super bold move for a 17-year-old. But, I mean, you'll see that this is just kind of his personality. And he's never afraid to kind of just tell it like it is and and be it doesn't matter if he's going to be seen as an outsider for at least a, a small amount of time because he knows that kind of in the long term if he believes in himself like he will wind up being successful and so after he graduates high school he goes to stanford to study computer science and there he doesn't take he doesn't really spend that much time in school he's mostly playing poker and poker playing obviously will play a huge role later in his investing career he definitely thinks in expected values and he really likes making bets. You can even see exchanges with 
other VCs on Twitter where he's trying to make bets about the odds that Trump will get elected. And he's he's always thinking in expected values, which is obviously very important to a venture capitalist or an investor or an innovator. And so after he is at Stanford for a year, he drops out and starts this company Looped with Nick Sivo and Alok Deshpande. And it's basically an early sharing app for locations that you can use on your mobile phone. So this is kind of a meme at the time. You can, th- there was a, a lot of people criticizing founders who were building towards all the trends, like local and social were very, very trendy at the time. But he was one of the first people really in the space. And so it wasn't, it wasn't that much of a trendy startup, but there was this, there was this, there was this era of social networks where Facebook was getting absolutely massive. Twitter was kind of seen as the next one that was ascendant and then Foursquare was right behind it. And at the time people thought that, oh, well, it'll just be a couple of years until Twitter grows up and becomes as big as Facebook. And then Foursquare will be as big as Twitter and Facebook. And maybe they'll all be roughly the same size. Of course, that didn't pan out at all. There was a power law distribution and Facebook is like a hundred times bigger than Twitter and, and Twitter was a hundred times bigger than Foursquare. So it wound up being a very tough market, but it was a really interesting opportunity for him to go build an app. And he wound up joining the very first cohort of Y Combinator, which is this legendary accelerator in Silicon Valley. And it just had a crazy class of companies come out of this very, very first cohort. So both Reddit and Twitch came out of this first group of startups. I think there were maybe eight companies and two of them you know, are still around today and are huge, huge sites. And so Y Combinator had been started by Paul Graham. He'd made money from ViaWeb, which was basically like the first e-commerce store builder, kind of like Shopify. And he wanted to invest some of the money that he'd made from that startup into new startups. So he calls the thing Y Combinator because a Y Combinator is a function in functional programming that it's a function that creates more functions basically. And Y Combinator, the startup school would be a, a company that creates more companies. And so every startup that went through the program got $6,000 per founder, not a lot of money, but back then people would just grab their laptops and just sit in a room and code and build a very basic app and then go and try try and raise money and it, it worked. And Sam was immediately impressive to Paul Graham. So PG is on record as saying, oh, so this is what Bill Gates must've been like because Sam was just so aggressive and driven. And that's something that comes back again and again throughout this story. And so Looped raised a series A and B from Sequoia and NEA, which will become important later. And you can kind of see that this is the beginning of these strong ties between Sequoia and Y Combinator and Sam. And they go on to kind of create this mafia that people joke about where, you know, if you want to do anything significant in Silicon Valley, you kind of got to go through this, this, you know, this mafia. And so the company Looped had some early success. They partnered with some mobile carriers. I don't know if you remember back in the day, Boost Mobile had this, this ad campaign called Where You At? And it was defined by this product that they had, which would allow you to push to talk. So you could call someone kind of like a walkie talkie, but that Where You At campaign was actually also about location sharing and Looped was the product that kind of enabled that. But this was still really, really early in the days of GPS and a lot of these systems were very battery hungry. And so they grew the app to 5 million registered users, but it never really took off in any significant way. Nevertheless, Sam was pretty good at brokering deals with these bigger 
telecom companies and these mobile companies. And he would actually do a good job of getting, in for, getting them in front of big tech execs. So he presented at Apple's WWDC and famously wore these two polos at the same time. It was kind of a funny look at the time. And, but after a few years, I mean, Sam started this in 2005 and it took years to really get anything going with Looped. So they were kind of limping along. And in 2011, he joined Y Combinator. And we'll get into the full YC era in a minute, but we need to close the book on Looped first because they had an absolutely crazy exit. So the company was bought for $43.4 million by Green Dot Technology. And they'd raised about $30 million. So it wasn't like an incredible outcome, but it had a really interesting structure. So Green Dot was this financial firm that was founded in 1999, and they had been working with Sequoia since 2003. And they raised a $20 million round from Sequoia in 2007, and then they went public at a valuation of $2 billion. So they were pretty big. Green Dot basically made these prepaid credit cards, and they were targeted at teenagers who didn't have access to credit cards, and their parents wouldn't let them get credit cards. I actually used these as a teenager. You could buy them, and then you could go online and buy things from like eBay, and then you wouldn't have to hassle your, your parents to borrow their credit card because you could just go and buy them at a, at a grocery store, essentially, with cash. So it was a really cool idea, and the company Green Dot did very well. And Sequoia was an investor in both companies, both Green Dot and Looped. And so Sam was able to get this aqua hire done. But interestingly, it's pretty clear that he got in like an earnout in this aqua hire. So Sequoia got their money back and Sam got a payday as long as he was going to stay on and build something cool for Green Dot. And him and Alok stayed on at Green Dot and actually built an entirely new product. And this is while he's still at YC. They built this product called GoBank, which was an entire like banking system for Green Dot. And it wound up powering a bunch of different services for, for Green Dot later in the later years. But this was, you know, a turning point, obviously, at this point. Sam has had kind of a rough go with the first startup. He got some money though, and he has an opportunity to really shift into the investor role at Y Combinator. So this is where he starts really focusing on investing. YC partners do not make a lot of money. They get carry in the fund, and if the investments do well, they'll make a lot of money, but they make basically minimum wage while they're actually working. So he raises a separate fund called Hydrazine that's anchored by Peter Thiel. He gets $21 million for that and he starts doing seed deals. And about 75% of his deals are YC companies. And he actually invested in my first company and a bunch of other companies. And, and he has this like poker player mentality. He's really focused on finding undervalued startups that basically have great products and but have superficial problems. And so Patrick Collison, the CEO of Stripe, said that his brain is like a claw machine. It roams around, but has the ability to plunge very deep when necessary. And that's, that's kind of the, the mentality of, of Sam. He really, really likes to go deep into pretty much any industry. He doesn't stay focused in one place for very long, but he likes to, he likes to really think extremely long-term and then go and find the best possible people that are working on a specific problem and then fund them. And so in 2014, he's been, at, he's been at YC for three years at this point, and PG has been running YC for nine years, and he's getting tired. So YC was absolutely crushing it at this point. And at 2014, they had Stripe, Airbnb, DoorDash, and Dropbox. Sam said that their 
IRR, like their internal rate, rate of return, was over 100% at this point. So they were just basically printing money. And PG needed a successor to take over. And he said at the time, Sam is one of the smartest people I know and understands startups better than perhaps anyone I know, including myself. He's the one I go to when I want a second opinion about a hard problem. And so Sam becomes president at just 28 years old. And Sam has this thesis about how companies can succeed when a new person takes over. He basically says that in order for an organization to thrive under the new leadership, you need to refound the company because the founder is no longer there. And this is kind of the, the analogy to Tim Cook. He really focuses on, on changing the way YC thinks about what they do. YC for a long time had just been, it's an incubator, you show up, you get a couple thousand dollars, you go to demo day, you raise more money, and you grow from there. But Sam wants to completely expand that. So he starts doing a whole bunch of new projects, YC research, he starts nonprofit investing, he raises a growth fund, and you know, it's, he's, he, he really very clearly is not afraid to stand up and be scrutinized. It's like, you know, when he was in his high school and he stood up and, you know, announces that he's gay. He openly admits that YC is going to fund stupid things and make mistakes. Like he, he says at the time, part of our model is to make the cost of mistakes really low and make, and then make a lot of mistakes. We'll fund a lot of people doing things that sound really dumb. And most of the time they will be. And some of the time it will seem like a bad idea and be jaw droppingly brilliant. The very best startup ideas are at the intersection of the Venn diagram of sounds like a bad idea and is in fact a good idea. And so th there's this common you know, idea in Silicon Valley that great ideas start out looking like a toy, things that look silly can eventually look really, really powerful. And obviously that's the story of Airbnb where you know, it started as you know, renting an airbed and sleeping in a stranger's house. And now it's you know, basically disrupting the hotel industry and it's a multi-billion dollar company. And so his, his, he's focused on, you know, really scaling YC and doing all these new projects, but he's also super focused on just helping founders very tactically. Like I, I remember I needed to talk to him about something once and I emailed him and was on the phone with him within five minutes. And he just gave me the answer immediately and we were off the phone. It was super, super helpful. It really like changed my career basically. And he was constantly focused on meeting people and helping founders. And he even, he even tweeted once like, it tilts me when mediocre VCs brag about how they will never meet a founder without an intro. And so, you know, at this time he's just meeting tons and tons of founders. And you can see that on Hacker News, there's all these, instances where people have questions. He says, yeah, just email me. And he gives his email out. Obviously, he probably can't do that as much anymore now that he's running OpenAI. But at the time, he was very much doing things that don't scale to use the, the YC parlance. And so he, he, he had a particular impact on Airbnb at the time. The Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb, had projected out revenues to $30 million. <laughs> and Sam just said, take all the M's and make them B's. <laughs> Either you don't believe everything you said in the rest of the deck or you're ashamed or I can't do math. Because basically Sam saw what Chesky was pitching and realized that if everything played out, this would be a really, really huge, huge business. But Chesky was just a little bit shy about actually putting crazy numbers in a deck and presenting them. So a lot of, a lot of what Sam did was just, you know, 
encourage people. And you can see that on Twitter around this time in like 2013, he, he's just like giving random shout outs to the Stripe creative director for launching a new website. And he picks up a new Model S for, and, you know, tweets that like, it's the best car at any price. It's excellent work, Elon Musk. He's just like, he's just a total cheerleader for startups. And he even, he even starts rethinking how startups get built a bit. And he is very focused on how employees, early employees get compensated with equity. One of the problems is that Oftentimes, employees get a very small equity grant, and then they're there for a few years, but the company has an IPO, they have to leave, and then they have to put up all this money to buy their, their they, have to, they need to actually exercise their options to start owning the stock. And so he liked this idea of granting options that are ex exercisable for 10 years from the grant date, which basically covers all cases. And, and this became a little bit of a trend, although not everyone adopted it, but it's just one of those things that's like not only founder friendly, but basically em startup employee friendly. And it just kind of shows that he's like really thinking deep about long-term value creation at these startups. And it's really funny because now he looks back on this time and has said that, you know, he feels bad about the advice that he gave during YC because he didn't take any of this advice when he was building OpenAI. Like at YC, he's saying you got to launch immediately. You don't raise a lot of money. You need to sprint toward product market fit and talk to your users. And they didn't do any of that as op at OpenAI, as we'll see in a little bit. But as you'll see when we go through the OpenAI story, it, it really is the exception that proves the rule. And a lot of his startup advice is still really, really accurate to this day. And so at YC, he continues just scaling the investing operation. He raises this fund for YC continuity. It's their growth fund that will invest in the most successful YC companies. He has this idea that like, why should, why should YC only own 6% or 8% of, of Airbnb when they could own 25% of Airbnb and do so much better. And they wanted to raise, he wanted to raise billion, like a multi-billion dollar growth fund, which would have been really, really aggressive. And, but there were obviously a lot of questions about, okay, well, if YC has this massive growth fund and they don't invest in you, is that a negative signal? And there's a lot of herd mentality in Silicon Valley. So it could have been a little bit tricky. And then, and then on the flip side, all the successful YC founders, they want to go on and raise from like the tier one VCs. So if, you, if YC continuity is getting the call, it might be because one of the big name VCs passed. And so there's a little bit of, of adverse selection there. But it's all part of this mission to just continue scaling YC. At the time, he said he wanted to turn YC into a trillion dollar enterprise. And so he expands, what YC's bread and butter at this point is, is consumer software, B2B software, SaaS. And he wants to expand that. So he gets into hard tech investing. I remember meeting with some founders who were running a biotech company and Sam personally recruited them to join YC, even though they had already raised money and they were a pretty big company. And now they're worth like multiple billions of dollars, but he got them to like technically go back to YC and do it as a later stage company just because he wanted to kind of build the brand and, and let people know that, you know, YC was focused not just on consumer software, not just on B2B software. And there's a bunch of other examples like this. He, he brought in a supersonic plane company called Boom. He convinced the founders of Cruise, the self-driving car company to apply. He... While he was there, two nuclear startups joined, Oklo, which does Fission, and Helion, which does Fusion, which will become really, really important later in this story. 
And he's just completely bullish on all things startups during this time. And naturally, a lot of people are skeptical of him. And so to try and to try and calm the idea that there's a bubble at this time, I think this is 2015, he takes he makes a bet. Of course, you know, he's the poker player, so everything is about expected value. And he makes this hundred thousand dollar bet. Whoever wins it will, you know, the other person will donate to charity. But he says that by January 1st, 2020, three conditions will be met that will be indicative of a growing startup market. And so he in the in the super big unicorn growth stage companies, Uber, Palantir, Airbnb, Dropbox, Pinterest, and SpaceX, they were worth just over $100 billion then. And he thinks that the companies will be worth at least $200 billion in aggregate. So, so a 2x growth. And then in the mid-size category, Stripe, Zenefits, Instacart, Mixpanel, Teespring, Optimizely, Coinbase, Docker, and Weebly are mid-stage, and they were worth less than $9 billion. He thought that they'd be worth more than $27 billion in 2020. And then the YC 2015 batch, which was basically worth nothing at the time, will be worth at least $3 billion in 2020. And he, he missed it by just a little bit, but he got really, really close. Like you take SpaceX and Airbnb and Uber, those that's easily $200 billion. Stripe and Coinbase are easily over $27 billion. And then in the YC winter 2015 batch, GitLab is worth $7.5 billion now. I know it's been a couple of years since the, since the bet went through, but he only missed it by a little bit. And it just kind of goes to show you that he was correctly bullish on how massive the startup market was going to be at right around this time. But there was something bigger going on in technology around this time. And that was kind of how everyone was thinking about artificial intelligence. And so Sam had written about artificial intelligence and he, he liked to call it machine intelligence because although it would come from a machine, it wouldn't feel artificial when it, when it, when it arrived. And so he'd written about this in 2013, but there were a couple turning points that happened shortly after. So in 2014, Nick Bostrom published Super Intelligence, where he really mapped out all the different ways that machine intelligence could compound and become much more intelligent than humans over a long period of time. And then in January of 2015, there was an AI conference in Puerto Rico where all the big AI researchers and kind of philosophers got together and discussed AI and Elon Musk was there and he came back like super freaked out. And if you've ever seen those clips of Elon talking about artificial intelligence, you know, is releasing the demon and, and how we need to be worried about that. A lot of that came out of that conference. And so shortly after that, everyone starts thinking about how to build an organization that would prioritize humanity over super intelligent artificial agents, essentially. So, so Sam, this is where he starts OpenAI, and originally it starts as a nonprofit. And there's this funny, there's this funny re full circle moment with the Reddit team at this point. So Reddit was in the same, same Y Combinator batch, the very first one in 2005 as Sam. Years later, Sam Altman, he actually served as the CEO of Reddit while they were going through a leadership change. And then, and then the first version of OpenAI's GPT model was trained on Reddit data. And so there's this funny, like, full circle that, that, that happens with, with Sam and, and, 
and and Reddit that comes, you know, he picks up these relationships and he's able to maintain them for a very, very long time. And so, you know, he starts OpenAI as this nonprofit with Elon and the whole goal is responsible AI development. And a lot of this was because Google had a near monopoly on AI development at the time. There was a company, DeepMind, that was basically the leader in artificial intelligence development, but they sold to Google. And none of their investors really wanted them to sell to Google. There was a, there was a fear that if DeepMind and all these great AI researchers fell into the hands of this for-profit company, their mission would be tainted and they would be focused on profit and we wouldn't be able to reap the benefits of responsible AI development. And so there's this question, you know, Google has now aligned itself with DeepMind and is has basically unlimited resources, unlimited money because of the amazing ad business that they've built up. They basically have a monopoly on search. And so how do you beat Google? And Sam has an interesting blog post about this. He'd, he'd read this book, Endurance, and he's really focused on this idea and the quote that he posts is, everyone knows that you need a great team, great execution, and a great idea. Less obvious is that you need to have great endurance. It's very tough to keep going when everyone tells you your idea sucks and it will never work, especially when things are plainly not working. It's tough to keep going when everything goes wrong, which it almost certainly will. And it's tough to keep working when you're really tired. But often that extra 5% at a critical point is how you beat out a competitor for a critical deal, and then they disappear into the rearview mirror. And so this is super relevant to OpenAI because he kept OpenAI going for a decade, and then, of course, they launch ChatGPT, and now it's the fastest growing consumer app of all time. And everyone says, oh, it's a, such an overnight success, but very clearly Sam was thinking about this with a really long time horizon, thinking that he'd be working on this for decades. And it took basically a decade to even ha start having an impact and start making any real money. Although obviously the, the compute costs a lot and they're still losing money, but they, they've finally gotten to basically product market fit at this point. So let's go over a quick history of OpenAI. So, you know, founded in, 2005, founded in 2015, 2017, they're spending about $8 million in cloud computing. And they're really training models. Like that, I think that was about 75% of their operating budget. They were buying NVIDIA GPUs and training models on Reddit data and gaming and all sorts of things. And then in 2018, there's this turning point where Elon resigns from the board. And he said there was a conflict of interest. There's a question about maybe they were fighting for AI talent because OpenAI needed AI developers and Tesla also needed AI developers for the self-driving system. Sam said that Elon thought that OpenAI had fallen behind Google and that Elon should run the company. But all of that's kind of hearsay at this point. But they split and Sam is basically in charge of the company now. And in 2018, that same year, they drop GPT-1, which is of course the precursor to ChatGPT. And it's a pretty small data set, four and a half gigs, and it can't do much. It kind of just rambles and guesses the next word, but it's clearly promising. And so in 2019, they launched GPT-2 with 10 times the data and 10 times the parameters. If you've seen those, those images with the circles comparing, this is how big GPT-3 is, this is how big GPT-4 is. Like this was the era where these models were really, really scaling. 
And so in 2019, GPT-2 launches, clearly OpenAI is onto something and Sam recognizes this. So he winds up stepping down as president of YC. And it's kind of unclear what happened. Obviously, he, he'd scaled YC a ton, been there for a number of years. But clearly, it's just obvious that OpenAI was very worth spending all your time on. So he's now at OpenAI full-time as co-founder and CEO and running that team and building that company. And in late 2019, July, he signs a deal to get $1 billion from Microsoft. And it's mostly compute credits for Azure so they can train these models. But it just goes to show you that Sam is incredibly good at getting that building these relationships with these really high-powered people. So pretty much all of that deal was, you know, his ability to build a shared vision with Satya Nadella. And you can see that they're talking about each other all the time now, and they've grown even closer in, in, in as collaborators. And so th obviously this comes with some caveats. People are a little bit worried that Maybe OpenAI won't be so independent. Obviously, going back to that story of DeepMind and Google, there was a fear that when DeepMind partnered with Google that they would kind of shift away from their core mission. A lot of AI researchers said, is this going to happen to OpenAI where they're going to wind up being subservient in some ways to Microsoft? But they've done a lot to maintain some independence and obviously the deals keep going through. It's kind of unclear at this point, but it, most importantly, it's allowed Sam and the OpenAI team to continue developing and going after these bigger and bigger models that require more and more compute power. So in April of 2022, they launched Dolly 2, the image diffusion model, and it's a real turning point for image generation. It, it's like the first time that you can type a, a prompt and actually get something that looks good. Now Dolly 2 looks terrible compared to mid-journey and the later models. But at the time, it was clearly a turning point for this tech. And people really, there was very clearly a moment when everyone was like, okay, this stuff works now. And then towards the end of that year of 2022, Sam and OpenAI have this really big gamble. They have this great large language model in GPT-3. It's getting better and better through various iterations and they're about to launch GPT-4 and they want to create a consumer product. And that's where the idea for ChatGPT comes from. And there was a lot of debate internally about whether ChatGPT would work as a product. There was no reason why someone couldn't have built ChatGPT off of the GPT-3 API. It just had never really happened. And and Sam just made the call that they were going to build this thing, put it out in the world and see what happened. And there was a lot of internal skepticism about whether or not it would work or whether it would be seen as kind of a boring toy. But obviously, we know what happened. It launches and it's the fastest consumer product to 100 million users ever. And it's just been an absolute phenomenon. It triggered all of the major big tech companies to think about AI more significantly. It kicked off a massive fundraising boom in artificial intelligence companies and generative AI companies. And that kind of brings us to today. So there are still a lot of questions about how Sam sees the world, given that he's working so deeply on artificial intelligence and clearly believes that this is going to be reality within his lifetime. So one interesting area that he's been focused is in nuclear power and energy production. So he brought Helion into Y Combinator and then has been on the board and has worked with them for a number of years. And 
he, clearly he can see the future and thinks that artificial intelligence systems are going to be incredibly en energy constrained. They're going to need a ton of energy to run these systems since these data centers require lots of energy. It's like kind of the main cost component after after you buy the actual GPUs, you need electricity to run them. And so he's been super focused on nuclear fusion to basically solve the energy production problem. And if it works, that's going to help AI scale incredibly quickly. And then the other side of the future that Sam is clearly thinking about is what will the world look like for humans once artificial AI and AGI has arrived. And one of the main problems is, of course, that once you have these incredible AI systems, you can create unlimited fake humans, essentially. Social media posts, we already see stuff on Twitter that's clearly made by ChatGPT. It's going to get harder and harder to identify what is and is not real. And most people, they might not even care, but he clearly thinks that it is important to prove a human identity online because he's building this system, WorldCoin, which he launched or started building, I think, in 2019. And essentially, WorldCoin scans your eyeball and creates this like proof of humanity. And it's, fr it's framed right now as potentially a way to solve universal basic income and wealth inequality. So Sam's thought about UBI a lot. He's written about the problem of growing wealth inequality since like 2013. And he actually ran an experiment around UBI while he was at YC Research where they paid people and saw how that affected their, their life trajectory. He also supported Andrew Yang, who of course ran on the presidential platform of universal basic income for every American. And and WorldCoin might be Sam's kind of long-term solution to universal basic income, create a new currency that can be evenly distributed to everyone in the world, all humans, and, and you know, use that to kind of bootstrap some post-scarcity society. It's still extremely early, and there's a lot of people that are extremely skeptical of WorldCoin, but it's interesting that he's, he, that he's found this way in a time when crypto is you know, kind of seen as, as scammy and not really working. WorldCoin is something that I, I don't even think you can trade it right now. I think you can just scan your eye and sign up essentially. But he's thinking really, really long-term and wants something to work here. And he's also talked about the problems of anonymity on the internet. This was in the context of this this app called Secret that launched years ago. And and he had kind of a bad experience with it. He said, anonymity breeds meanness. The internet has proven this time and time again. People are willing to say nice or neutral things with their name attached. They need anonymity for mean things and things they are embarrassed about. In fact, the closer to real identity internet forums get, the less they seem to decay. Anonymous social networks have been thus far anyway in the category of services that get worse as they get bigger. Unlike services like Facebook or Twitter, they get bigger, they, they get better as they get bigger. And so you could see that if WorldCoin solves this idea of anonymity on the internet in a post AI world, that could solve kind of some of the problems that these networks face, if you could, if you could say, okay, I, I only want to see tweets from people that are verified humans, essentially, that that could potentially allow decorum to remain, essentially. And so 
there's still the question of what Sam really believes. There's, and this is really important because obviously he's running OpenAI. It's super consequential, consequential company, and he has, you know, through his blog and through his tweets and his his speaking engagements, you can tell that he's interrogated these big issues many, many times and is capable of believing multiple semi-conflicting things. Like on one hand, he is definitely a techno optimist. Like he believes that the world is getting healthier and more prosperous. He's excited about technology and would definitely prefer living today than 50 years ago. But at the same time, he believes that stagnation is real and that we're not really seeing innovation in things other than software. He makes this point that in the 1960s, oil was our primary energy source, followed by coal, gas, hydro, nuclear, and a tiny fraction of renewables. And today the order is still oil, gas, coal, hydro, nuclear with a tiny fraction of renewables. Like we haven't really seen any innovation in the energy production methods that we use. And he also, even though he believes that like generally things are getting better, he is worried about significant disasters happening. So he says that mildly bad things are less common, but very bad things are now possible that were not 50 years ago. So you'll see things like life extension is going up and we're, and we're fighting diseases and we're not getting in as many car crashes and we're, we're being a healthier society. But he says that one individual can have a much worse impact. And one area that he talks about in 2013 is, is bioweapons specifically. He says, we now have the tools to create viruses in labs. What happens when someone creates a virus that spreads extremely easily, has greater than 50% mortality, and has an incubation period of several weeks? Something like this, released by a bad guy, and without the world having time to prepare, could wipe out more than half the population in a matter of months. Misguided biotech could effectively end the world as we know it. And so even though he believes that overall things are getting better, he's very worried about these doomsday scenarios. And you know, he's a prolific startup investor, so clearly he's aiming for a bright future, but at the same time, he's also a prepper and he's worried about this bad scenario. He said, I have guns, gold, potassium iodide, antibiotics, batteries, water, gas masks from the Israeli Defense Force, and a big patch of land in Big Sur I can fly to. Like, he is very much thinking about these tail risk scenarios, and obviously that's super relevant to artificial intelligence right now. Part of what's driving some of that worry for him is how he thinks about government and economics. So he said that without economic growth, democracy doesn't work because voters occupy a zero-sum system. And democracy doesn't work well in a zero-sum world. So he argues that we must return to a world of real growth, like growth where we do more with less. And this kind of underpins a lot of his philosophy about politics and wealth distribution and even artificial intelligence. Like he's cautiously optimistic about machine intelligence, but he really, he's very clearly worried about some rogue scenario where an individual could have an outsized negative impact on humanity. So he said that the development of artificial general intelligence would be the biggest development in technology ever. He's basically called it the last invention. And he said that it's possible 
that this sort of creativity will be an emergent property of learning in some non-intuitive way. Something happened in the course of evolution to make human br the human brain different from the reptile brain. Sam is cautiously optimistic about machine intelligence, and he said that if artificial intelligence works, it'll be the biggest development in technology ever. I, th I think he's called it the last invention. But he says that with some caveats. Like he thinks that maybe we don't want to build machines that are conscious in the traditional sense. The most positive outcome that he can think of is one where computers get really good at doing and humans get really good at thinking. And if we never figure out how to make computers creative, then there'll be a very natural division of labor between man and machine. But, you know, it's unclear if that will actually happen. Obviously, some of the models that he's built at OpenAI are starting to feel pretty creative. So how he grapples with that over the next few years is a big question. And so everyone is kind of wondering right now, is Sam Altman legit? Like, is there a catch? Is what he says publicly actually what he believes privately? And so we can look at a few of the common criticisms. Like, he's proposed regulation of artificial intelligence. And a lot of people are skeptical about that. They think, okay, well, maybe he's just proposing let's regulate artificial intelligence so that OpenAI can have a regulatory monopoly and make lots of money. But Sam actually proposed the regulation of artificial intelligence a decade ago. And he pointed to this very interesting story about X, which is the separation of isotopes by laser excitation. And it's it's a nuclear technology that was developed in the late 20th century. And it's the method for basically uranium enrichment. And lasers are used to separate isotopes of uranium, and it, produced, and it produces enriched uranium, which can, of course, be fuel for nuclear power plants, but it can also be used in nuclear weapons. And so Silex was designed and created by a private technology company, but because it carries significant risk to human life, it's been heavily regulated. And so he thinks that it's okay for a private company to create a technology that is potentially very dangerous to the world, as long as there is a government regulatory body that can oversee and make sure that the technology doesn't proliferate and get in the hands of just anyone who wants it. The second area that people are always questioning Sam's motivations around is the fact that he has no equity at OpenAI. Obviously, that's extremely rare for startup founders. I can't think of another ex example of someone who's built a multi-billion dollar company and doesn't own any of it, but he actually doesn't, and that's been on record and reported widely. And there's a few reasons, I think, that why he's done that. I mean, first, obviously, he's made a lot of money on his other startup bets. He's invested in Stripe and all the great YC companies, so he's made plenty of money. And I think from an early age, he admired other tech founders for donating their fortunes. Like when Zuck announced that he would be donating 99% of his fortune, Sam was kind of outraged that people were not receptive of that. Like Zuck announced that he was donating, you know, tens of billions of dollars to cure disease and improve education and build communities. And the response from everyone else was, you know, just like, fuck you. And, and Sam clearly did not like that and did not like that that was the response to Zuck donating his entire fortune. But I think that, I think that there's a few other reasons why Sam might have opted to not give himself any, any equity, even though he obviously could have. 
I mean, the first is, is a little out there and a little sci-fi, but I think that he might just believe that if OpenAI works and they succeed in developing AGI, that money might not be worth much and like the entire economy might be rebuilt and reimagined. And maybe WorldCoin pays, plays a part of that, but I think he, he's, he's, he thinks that the OpenAI mission is, is basically bigger than any potential financial gain. And then he's also just really good at thinking long-term. Like we've seen this, we've seen this throughout the story. And it's clear that the head of an AI company would face lots of scrutiny. During his ascendance, this was the era of big tech CEOs being called in front of Congress and talking about their business models. And that famous quote by Zuck where he has to say, Senator, we sell ads. And Sam knew that if OpenAI worked and they started developing really, really powerful artificial intelligence systems, he would be in front of Congress. And lo and behold, earlier, a couple months ago, he was in front of Congress. And by not taking equity, he was able to take the argument that, oh, he's just doing this for the money completely off the table. And that earns him tons of credibility. And he can much more confidently say that he is doing this for good reasons, essentially, and has really thought deeply about this. And Sam also has this, this interesting quote from a long time ago when he was just talking about how startups scale. He said that, most careers turn into sales jobs when you get senior enough. And this is something that obviously happens. Like you start out by building a, you know, a small software thing. Maybe you hack it together. Maybe you're an individual programmer. This is the, start, the story of basically every Y Combinator company. But over time, you have to sell and you focus on distribution and marketing. And at a certain point, you get to the scale where you're doing business with the government and brokering huge partnerships. And Sam's role over the past year has clearly been to work with Microsoft at the highest level and then fly around the world and discuss artificial intelligence with world leaders and testify in front of Congress. And so it's clear that he's thought this through and really seen that, you know, if this is successful, he's going to face a lot of scrutiny. And one thing that will help him in his new role as, you know, chief AI salesperson, essentially, or pitch man for the future is not having a economic incentive that kind of clouds the issue. But there's still kind of the question of how Sam views humans versus artificial intelligence. And there's this interesting quote where he talks about this where he says, evolution will continue forward. And if humans are no longer the most fit species, we may go away. In some sense, this is the system working as designed. But as a human program to survive and reproduce, I feel we should fight it. And that is exactly the statement that I'd wanna hear from someone that's running an artificial intelligence company. They acknowledge that we face these evolutionary pressures and that we will in some sense be battling directly against artificial intelligence systems, but we still, we still have to fight it and we still have to focus on developing AI responsibly and creating systems that don't completely overtake humanity.